You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Wrath is about anger getting perverted and wanting it to injure another person. When our anger moves away from protecting the right things and correcting the wrong things, so say this with me, anger Anger. is about protecting the right things and correcting the wrong things. That can be redemptive. Jesus gets angry. And not just in the turning over tables. I mean, you would think, especially like those of us who are bent toward justice, like we love the turning over tables part of Jesus, right? Like he, like almost like we think he went to temple all the time turning over tables. Like, how y'all doing today? You know, like he got Hulk every time he got in there. He does it once, once. But there's another time where Jesus got angry. He got angry at the religious leaders because there was a man who was disabled, and it was on the Sabbath day, and Jesus basically created a standoff. He told the man, stand up here, and religious leaders here, man who's disabled here, Jesus here. It'd be easy to think Jesus is objectifying the man, but what Jesus is doing is, yes, he's about to prove a point, and he's about to show us something about God's mercy and love and our notion for rules, right? And so Jesus says, should I heal this guy? The religious leaders say what? Nothing. They say nothing. And then the Bible says Jesus got angry with them. But what did Jesus do? Yeah, yeah, no, he'd asked that. He'd asked that, and they were quiet about it. And so what did Jesus do? He healed the man. Did Jesus turn their hands into stones? No, but we'd have liked that. Let's be honest. Like, we'd have liked there to have been a little exchange take place. Because, see, that's how the thing works. See, in our movies, in our stories that we tell, we are drawn toward the stories where the person who's oppressed gets back at the oppressor. We're drawn to the stories where the victim becomes the hero by taking the problem into their own hands and punishing the person promoting the injustice. We're drawn to those stories. And that is a, that is a sign that we're drawn less to anger which I think is redemptive, and more to wrath. Because wrath becomes a love of justice that is perverted and seeks to take revenge. Because what's the truth of the gospel? As much as it bothers me sometimes, personally, is that the gospel liberates not only the oppressed, but the oppressor. That's why the gospel, when it's embodied by a faithful witness of a church, can change society. No government can do that. Capitol Hill can't do that. Matter of fact, literally cannot do that. Because we're promoting wrath too much in our society. Anytime anger turns into wanting to seek injury of another person, emotionally or physically, theologically we move out of the category of anger into the vice tradition called wrath. Jesus, and I know it's kind of, ethereal and, and, you know, it's kind of a um, sort of a platitude, what I'm about to say, which is why we're going to have a discussion and talk about spiritual practices. Jesus shows us that anger becomes redemptive when the target of anger is goodness, when the target of anger is not vengeance, when it's goodness. When Jesus got angry, he healed. Let's just talk about when Jesus turned over the tables, does anybody know what the text immediately says after the tables were turned over and he ran the thieves and the injustice people out? 
Yeah, but do we know what happened right after that? Not just all the other people. The Bible's very specific with the people that could. It was the, beg- it was the poor and the sick and the disabled all of a sudden were into the temple. And Jesus looks at the margins and he sides there every time. And he makes sure there will be nothing that exploits the vulnerability of the already vulnerable. The problem is we all like to think that we're vulnerable. And so, at times, anger then moves away from redemptive movements to wrathful movements. So what I wanted to do today was talk about the antidote to anger, and I wanted to talk about some practices, but I want to start with a story. So a man saw a snake being burned to death and decided to take it out of the fire. When he did, the same snake bit him and caused excruciating pain. The man dropped the snake, and the reptile fell right back into the fire. So the man grabbed a metal pole despite his excruciating pain, and he took the snake out of the fire, and he saved its life. Someone who was watching approached the man and asked, why did you save the snake after it bit you? And the man replied, the nature of a snake is to bite, but that's not going to change my nature, which is to help. So I want to make a first statement. If you're a Christian... You've been given a new nature. Say new nature. You were born again. That's the language. That means your new nature is not a nature to bite. Jesus proves that because he'd rather die on the cross for his enemies than kill them. Our new nature is not to be angry. Our new nature is to be peacemakers. So the first things first is starting with the idea that if anger is a part of my nature, if I'm a generally angry person, then I need to take a look at my relationship with Jesus just in general first. And I need to ask myself some questions. Lord's love for you and hope for you. No, that's changing. This is being honest and not being self-deceived. Because I feel like we live in a culture of self-deception a lot of times, right? leads to this willful blindness about things. The first thing's first is to know, whether you feel it or not, it's to know that if you are born again, if you are the child of God, and the Spirit of God is in you, then you have a new nature, and it's not a nature of wrath, which is why Paul said in Ephesians 2, we were children of wrath. We read that all kinds of wrong, like that God was going to whale us or something. And what he means, I think, is, is we were children of violence. Rather than, we're not a children of wrath, we're children of peace. We're supposed to be, because our prince is the prince of peace. So know that. And so here's the thing. The only thing you and I can do is take precautions and walk wisely at this point. Because anger is natural, and it's human, and it's going to happen. We're either going to suppress it, or we're going to give permission to it. And what I want to do is I want to invite us into some practices that help us give permission to it, but in a way that is helpful and redemptive. And it starts with this. First things first, spiritual practices are means of grace. Say a means of grace. What that means is that when I am embracing a spiritual practice, I'm putting myself before the Spirit of God with intentionality. I'm putting myself, I'm organizing or reorganizing my time or my habits to place myself with God intentionally so that in this practice, my desires are changed. Our desires are shaped by our practices. That's why we practice table in the hope that our desires are changed through the practice. 
That's why we have practices in church. We sing in the hopes that what we sing eventually becomes what we want or what we mean. Desires are shaped by practices. And those desires give birth to habits, which will either virtue or vice. Practices are means of grace. That's the first thing I'd like to throw your way. And so I figure then if we're going to talk about this and we're going to talk about wisdom, then we need to talk about the precautions and the steps we take. So I figure we could go to Proverbs, all right? So um, before you get up here on the Proverbs, I want to say something else, a little little play here. Um, Proverbs are guidelines, not guarantees. So say it with me. Proverbs are guidelines, not guarantees. And that's important because some of us who were, if we ever went through parenting classes, we were taught the proverb, raise your child in the way he should go or according to the Lord and he or she will not depart from it. And then we then have children who depart from it. And as a pastor, I've had people come and say, well, what about this? I did everything I knew to do. Why? Well, because we were taught the Proverbs are guarantees. Proverbs are not guarantees, they're guidelines. Because Proverbs are his, they're, they're Hebrew poetry, it's wisdom literature. So it's meant to evoke imagination. So, so keep in mind that Proverbs are guidelines, not guarantees. They're seeking to evoke imagination. They want us to think they, matter of fact, they're disruptive. They mean to be disruptive. They mean to get our attention, just like poetry. It forms as poetry. All right, so Proverbs 14, 15 to 16, uh, 17. We're going to read it all together with one voice. Let's read. The inexperienced one believes anything, but the sensible one watches his steps. A wise person is cautious and turns from evil, but a fool is easily angered and is careless. A quick-tempered person acts foolishly, and a person whose schemes is hated. All right. A wise person is cautious and turns from evil, but a fool is easily angered and is careless. So let's talk about ways we can try to become wise. First things first. A wise person does not try to attack evil with evil. That's the interesting thing about a violent society. We somehow think that more violence is going to get rid of violence. How's that been working for us? That's all it does. It's fire with fire. It's gas with the fire. But see, we want it, though, because of our our penchant toward wrath. We want revenge. What did Paul say about revenge? Romans 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Matter of fact, even that Exodus text says, God will visit the consequences on generations. You let him do that. And so what we need to understand is that wise people are cautious. But here's the key. The inexperienced one believes what? But the sensible one watches his steps. I want to talk about this inexperienced piece. When you hear the word inexperienced and you think of faith, what do you think of? Okay, we think young. We think immature, okay? Thanks for basically cutting the rest of the conversation off, Robin, with the answer that I'm looking for. Um, no, that's it. Like, like, so, so a lot of times we think inexperience has to do with youth or age, but I know some very immature old Christians. It's not about the age, it's the mileage, right? Like Paul's aim is maturity, spiritual maturity. This here, an inexperienced person is a person who can go to church, know all the songs, win a Bible bowl, but hasn't really trusted God in obedience to test and to see what peacemaking is like. We live in a society that thinks it's tough to be violent. I position to you that the most courageous and strongest thing a person can do is to be nonviolent. Why do you think that is? Well, there's that, because it's the opposite of what the world does. 
What did Jesus do? I would say if the answer is in the incarnation, what did Jesus do? He, let, he, let, he emptied himself. It's Philippians 2. He emptied himself. He gave up his power. He didn't consider his equality with God as something to be held on to, but emptied himself even to death on a cross. God saved the world through self-giving love, not self-asserting or self-serving love. And I would suggest that the inexperienced one, people who are inexperienced are those of us who won't take God at his word. We'll know all the stuff, but we won't trust him enough. And so here's the first thing I would say. It does start with whether or not you and I really do trust God, because here's the key. Anger is always about impulsive behaviors. It's always about impulse. Let's be honest. Raise your hand if you've ever been angry and blew up immediately. Yeah, the rest of you lied. Okay, so yeah, there. <laughs> raise your hand if you just lied. Don't. Um, so that, that, that's the thing. Like, anger is about, it's about an impulsive behavior. What gives anger place for wrath is the impulse of response. Here's what I would suggest. That's what it means to be quick-tempered, who acts foolishly. That's what it means to not be cautious. That's what it means to be sensible, is to not give yourself permission to be impulsive with feelings. So I want to give you a practice that I've used. All right, if you've been through 3E training, you know this symbol, um, but I'm not about to talk about it in the way that we do with 3E. I'm going to talk about it in a different way. Well, we do talk about it this way in 3E, um, but I want to talk about this. So here's what I've done in my life. If somebody provokes me to anger, I do have now, and it took me a long time, but my, one of my default moves, when I'm at my better day, obviously, right, like when I am more faithful, is I begin to walk it around what I call walk around the, the rectangle. So here's the thing. I ask, is it helpful? Is my response going to help the situation any? If it's not, what do I do? Stop. If it is... My response, if my response is going to help the situation, what do I do? Do I give myself permission to do it? No, that's right. You go to the next one. You don't give yourself permission yet. You go now. Is what I'm about to do or what I'm about to say beneficial? Will it add value to the person's life, what I'm about to do? Because you can come at someone with redemptive anger and add value to their life. If somebody is living their life in such a way that it is destructive and it is destroying their life, you're going to be fine. See, because wrath is like drinking rat poison, waiting on the rat to die. Like, you know you're not going to drink the rat poison, but you know that the person who's responding to you in this way, they're going to die. Like, their, their heart's going to die. Their emotion's going to die. Their life, they're in trouble here. So there is a way that in rebuke, in redemptive moves of anger, I call this the work of justice, in doing just things and seeking to make right what has been made wrong, it can be beneficial and add value to the oppressor's life. So that's possible. But if I say yes, do I give myself permission to do it yet? No. I go around to the next question. And the next question is, is it, like, is the timing good? Like, is, is this the time? Now, this is where I've blown it, personally. Like, I blow it on the timing part when I blow it. And when I blow it, I mean, I blow it up. Like, I, I don't play around. Like, there's no sense in half blowing it, right? Like, you might as well blow the whole thing up, right? Like, that's, that's, that's sometimes where I'm, I can be wired the wrong way. But if I, answer, if I answer no, then what do I do? I stop. I don't do it. But if I answer yes, do I give myself permission to do it? The final question then is it, and here's the way I like to figure that. Would you brag about it to your grandma? Would you brag about it to Jesus? Grandma. 
check this out. I just lit into him. Like, I just, let me tell you what I said, Grandma. It was awesome. He was crying and everything. It was, no, we wouldn't do that. You wouldn't call your best friend and be like, dude, I just smacked them in the... I mean, you wouldn't do that. That's not what we do. The thing is, if you answer yes, 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 and yes, then you give yourself permission to speak or to do. What have we done with this symbol? Come on. By going through this movement, what have you done? You've, that's it. That's all you've done is you've slowed down the impulsive act. You slow down the impulsivity, and you discern it. Now, here's the other thing. If you answer no to this and you do it anyway, what does that say about me? If I answer no to one of these and I do it anyway, what does that say about me? That I'm wrathful is what it says. Then I am giving permission to the vice to take root. We live in American rage. We live in an angry society. That's why I wanted to talk about this rather than me just preaching. My first practice to offer you is this tool. Any thoughts, any questions? Yeah, Ruth. Nor maybe not. I mean, it might. It might. Seriously, I don't know. I mean, that's why you've got to discern it, right? But in all honesty, how long do you really have to wait before you walk around this? Like, you can do this quickly. Like, I found myself, Ruth, doing this very quickly. Like, okay, like I'm feeling something in my gut, right? Like, okay, is what I'm about to do helpful? I, th- I think it is. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself a pass on that. I think it is, right? And I move around it. And there are times where I've walked away. Seriously. And then there are times where I've ignored it. So... Yeah, there, there's an issue of discernment there. But we'll talk more about the, about the urgency. Mick? Yeah, Mickey's been trained in 3E stuff 172 times. Um, I don't know how many labs you've sat through. But yeah, you use this with teenagers in your counseling, don't you? It's an impactful. Yeah, it's an impactful practice. Jim? Yeah, and, and frankly, I mean, raise your hand if you've ever blown up and it created more of a mess. I mean, that's kind of the thing, right? Like, you know, so yeah, there's that. All right, let's move on. Good, 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 good. All right, so Proverbs 15.1, let's all read it. A gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath on Facebook. I'm sorry, that wasn't... Um, <laughs> my, my bad. Uh, um Rest of Proverbs 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man holds it in check on Twitter. So that's, that's, that's the world in which we live. That's what we don't do. We have social media tools and platforms, and so we feel like we've got constant audiences and everybody's brave behind the screen. But the reality of it is, it's a gentle answer that turns away wrath, not a strong popping between the eyes answer. We have mistaken what being a jerk is with candor and political correctness stuff. Like, we live in a society that values not being politically correct more than we do following Jesus sometimes. And what I mean by that is, if you say something that is gentle, and if it may fall into the category of politically correct, you're not going to be awarded for being gentle. You're just going to be labeled for being 
politically correct. Because our measuring stick is ideological politics sometimes more than it is the cross. But what does the word gentle mean? When you hear the word gentle, what do you think of? You think of soft, and that's how we think about it. You know what the word gentle means in the Hebrew and in its Greek equivalent? Strength under control. But you can't, you don't have a word for that. A strength under control answer. No, it's gentleness is strength under control. That's why it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Gentleness is strength. It is a strength that is measured. You can give a strong word, but it is not going to be too strong for Isaac to hear are too strong for Lord here. You may blow it and give one too strong, but your desire is to be strong in your answer and in your response because of the anger. That's just there, but it's a measured rather than just a harsh, responsive, and impulsive word. When things happen to us, the impulse kicks in, and we fight fire with more fire, and it creates a bigger fire. I've blown it. Raise your hand if you've ever blown this. Raise your hand if you've ever hit it. Some people are like, (laughs) the non-left out, there's a a thing. We don't want to be like, no, that's the thing. And so here's the worst part, though, is we have social media platforms, or we do emails, or back in the day it was this thing called letters. Letters is what you use a pen and paper. (laughs) No, and and like there's this this thing, there's this thing, and we, we have these platforms that allow us to just be impulsive, right? It's all about impulse. We can send a text. Raise your hand if you've ever tried to handle conflict in text. Raise your hand if it was wildly successful and resulted in reconciliation and love. Right. Like, one, like maybe one of us or two of us because that's, that's what texting does. It, it, it creates permission for impulse. That's why I don't handle conflicts in text messages and I don't get into conflict-oriented conversations on Facebook. I either go private message or place a phone call. There's no reason to engage in that. Here's the problem. Most of us think we're here And you and I don't give any time to think, am I here? See, we don't, nobody wants to be the, nobody wants to be the fool. We all want to be the wise person, which is another way of saying we all want to be the victim, not the victimizer. Some of us are victims, though. Like we live in an, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. We're going to talk about the injustice in a minute. So I want to give you a practice that I have practiced for years. It's called WTH. Write it. Trash it or hold it. No, it's, it's, it's it. It's just WT. Write it, trash it, or hold it. Here's what I mean by that. When something happens to me in my life and it is stewing in me, because that's what, that's what turns into wrath is anger when it stews and settles, I write it out. I'll fire off an email, but I don't hit send. But I write it all out. Now I have a decision to make. Do I trash it or do I hold it? When you write it all out, what have you just done? You've gotten it out. Now what can you do, though, as you're writing or typing? You can measure your words. Like, that's you start editing. Like, you'll naturally edit. Now, what you then have to decide is, do I save it in my drafts folder, or do I put it on the notepad, or do I just turn it and fold it over and put it in the envelope, or do I actually send trash it? 
You don't send it. That, nowhere, this isn't WTHS. This is like write it, trash it, or hold it. That's it. Later on, you might decide that holding it is when you send it. Now, let me give a very practical tip. If you ever do this in an email, do not, I repeat, do not put the to field with the people in it. Do not like put other people's email in it because you might accidentally send it. I've done that. That's not good. That really resulted in like a W2H. So you gotta, you got to make sure, you got to make sure that when you do this, you don't just hit the send button, that you hold it. I'm going through something in my life right now, and I started feeling the anger stew in me, and so I typed up a letter, and I got it out of me, and now I'm kind of walking through it, and I'm trying to decide, do I trash it or hold it? And I think I'm holding it because I think I'm going to send it, but what was a three-page letter is now a one-page letter. So I don't know how this might work for you, but raise your hand if you have ever been given this counsel from me. Did it work? Did it help? It's helpful. It gets it out. And then you decide whether or not you send it. But what you do is you push back against the impulse. All right, write it, trash it, or hold it. WTH. All right, any questions about this? It's a very simple practice. I was taught this, by the way, from Brother Denny, who was an 87-year-old man who would owe my first two years of ministry, was very concerned about me and wanted to make sure that I knew that when I became a minister and when I became a pastor, I was always going to be subject to people's anger. And so I needed to have practices that did not allow me to fire anger with anger. And I will say that on my faithful days, I've, I've taken that to heart. All right, um, Proverbs 29, 8 through 9. All right, let's read it. Mockers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. If a wise man goes to court with a fool, there will be ranting and raving, but no resolution. I'm really entertained and interested in the last statement. If a wise man goes to court with a fool, there will be ranting and raving, but no resolution. What do you think the proverb writer is trying to help us say, the wisdom writer is trying to say? Yeah, there's a certain pointlessness to it. Like arguing with an irrational person with rational things is going to get you irrational stuff. You can't reason with irrational and you can't reason with unreasonable. So there may be people that you have to say, I'm out. But yet how many times are we firing off, right? Like we're still having the conversation. Raise your hand if you know some irrational people in your life. All right, now... This is where humility shines itself. Raise your hand if you've ever been the irrational person in your life. Wait, when you're unreasonable and irrational, you're not capable of reasoning rationally. And I think what the wisdom writer is trying to say is there are just some people that are just going to do what they do. And they're going to be what they're going to be. Trust God with them. And stop spinning your wheels in the mud. It'll dig you a deeper rut. And your anger will simmer and settle and turn to wrath. And before you know it, you will have turned them into an enemy. You will become the antagonist to their antagonism. And that is unhelpful. If you happen to be one of these uh, irrational and unreasonable people, in the name of all that is good and holy, stop. Let's just all stop. Because the fool is not interested in wisdom. 
They just want to set the city aflame. We like to call these folks, describe these folks as pot stirrers. Pot stirrers. We're just like, pot dealers? No, no, pot stirrers. Pot stirrers. No, those are other things. Um, No, these are pot stirrers. These are people who stir pots. These are people who just can't help but start trouble. Now, the Bible says something about that. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, So I want to give you a practice. Next. Pray and bless. Real simple. P and B. Wish there was a J to make it easier, but I couldn't find one. I couldn't, like I was trying so hard, like with the catchy stuff, like jacked up. I couldn't work that in there anywhere. Like, you know, um, here's what I think you do. You listen to Jesus. You pray for them by name, not pray for them generally, pray for them by name and ask that God bless them specifically. If you want to not let anger turn to wrath, then pray for them by name and ask God for a blessing over them. Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean, Lord, be with Lori. And bless her with a humble heart that she sees the error of her ways. And that I am right. Like, that's not it. That she doesn't throw the Bible at theology school at Fred. And that if she does, that she'll have an arm cramp. You know, you don't, that's not it. That's not the way to go. That's not what I'm saying. But you ask God to bless them with goodness and good life. This is hard, so I want to be very honest with you on how I do this at times. This is how these prayers begin for me. Father, I've heard Jesus. I know what he teaches. Be with them, and at some point, I want to ask you to bless them. But right now, what they did was just too wrong, just too wrong. Right now, what I want you to do is just, like, destroy them. Some of us have a right to pray those prayers. And I don't think Jesus is wagging his finger at us for that. Because you know what we've done? See, this is, this is it's called, God didn't call us to perfection, he called to faithfulness. This is being faithful. This is coming before the holy God and saying, look, I don't want this, but I know you want me to want this. And I don't even know if I want to want this, but I know I got to talk to you about it, so here I am. And I think God does that, doesn't he, Aaron? He does something with that. But he does something in us with that. And you know, those of you I've walked with in tragedy, when I've encouraged you to do this, you know what God does in this. And I think that's why Jesus taught this next scripture. That's why Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the key. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain in the righteous and the unrighteous. On one level, this is a humbling text that says, look, God, I, like, I know I deserve rain, but you give me sun. I'd rather you, like, send a thunderstorm on this person. But I know you don't want me to feel that way, but right now I do. Can I just be honest with you, God, with that? And God says, yeah, absolutely, because at least we've come to him. God is not some grandpa God who holds us over the pit of hell, ready to dangle us out unless we get everything right. What he does is he's good and he's gracious and he gets us. Trust that. 
but you got to try it. You've got to practice this. You can't do it once. You've got to do it more than once. Raise your hand if you know that, that you've done this and you've, you've had to do it more than once and you've seen God bring some healing in this. Next scripture, our next one. So one of the things I want to give you is the three-step. You still do the pray and bless, but you might have to assign a boundary for a while. But here's the thing. If you don't do step three, you're not doing it right. If you assign the boundary, but you don't keep reconciliation in view, what you could be doing is just escaping, running, or making them out to become the enemy. And believe me when I say wrath will come in your heart, not on you, in your heart. Sometimes you just have to assign a boundary. You may have to block the number, but here's the thing. You don't just do it. You let them know you're going to do it. I've done it. I've had to block numbers, but I let them know I was going to block numbers because they weren't weren't honoring the boundary. Like, stop cussing me out on text message, man. Right? Like, do it in person. This isn't helpful. I'll meet with you in two weeks. Don't give permission for it to get that close, but keep reconciliation in view. Because if you don't do step three, it's a two-step down a road you don't want to go. Here's the story. Here's the main thing. Because the battle's never flesh and blood. We live in a society that makes every battle a war and that makes every person the enemy. Now, I want to talk to us like we're Christians. Right? So Ephesians 6 teaches us something. So here's what Ephesians 6 says. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord in His vast strength. Whose strength? His. Put on the full armor of God. Whose choice is it to put it on? Mine. But whose strength? He's going to give me the strength to put it on. You can't lift it on your own. He'll give you the strength, but He can't make you carry it. He can't make you hold it, right? He may, he, we have to choose that. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle, read it with me, our battle is not against flesh and blood, read this with me, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Here's the thing I want to say, and I'm going to be very bold with this. If you don't believe in systemic injustices, then you're not reading this text the way Paul wrote it. You're just not. The reign of sin and death creates systems and systems of injustice that oppress people, period. It lifts up some and pushes some down. Sometimes the church is the most complicit with its leadership practices. We don't have to look very far to see that in a Me Too culture. Here's the thing about that. When Paul says against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world, powers of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces, evil heavens, if Paul wanted us to just spiritualize this, he wouldn't have given us four other Greek categories. Paul has a theology of Babylon and the kingdom. Every nation outside of the kingdom of God is what? Europe is. United States is. Babylon. It's all Babylon. There's the kingdom of God and there's everything else. Babylon can't help but do Babylon things. And so here's the point. When we kill people, do we kill the system? No. When you kill the leader of the system, do you kill the system? No, which is why we have a figure eight of terrorism in our world. It's it's historically precedent. It's, it's, It's there in the pages of history. 
Systems are real and they exist and they form people. It's a sociological reality for which God wired every human, which is why he says evil companionship does what? Now, what does it say? Evil companionship does what? Corrupts good morals. Why? Because of the system, the family system. Now, the practices that we embrace upholds and strengthens the system. It gives direction to the system. Practices give directions to systems. Values and ethics give direction to systems. But the point I'm trying to make is that we do live in a world where there are unjust systems and unjust things. And Christians are called to bear witness to those injustices. It's in the Proverbs too. And if you've been here any time, you know that this is there. We talked about it many different times. But here's where I'm trying to go. I can talk to you offline about that if you'd like. I'll stand up here. I'll stay here as long as you want to talk about the details of what I just said. Here's my point. The battle's never going to be me against you. It's never going to be me against you. It's never going to be you against you. It's not going to be flesh and blood. God became flesh and blood so that we would stop trying to kill it. We are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy, and the systems are the problem, and they form people, and we become instruments of those systems. But you can kill the people and not do undo the injustice. Yeah, it's not like the devil's going to be like, oh, man, they got Hitler. What do I do? Oh, I don't know what to do about world dictatorships that murder and genocide people while America is lynching people of color the whole time. What do I do? Injustice is injustice. And the systems are what frame it. And we become played by these injustices when we become complicit with the systems. But we also get played by the injustices when we attack people in the systems. Name it. Name things. I'll name it in a heartbeat. You know that. I'll name the person if I have to. Name me. The battle's not me and you. And anytime we forget that, we give way to wrath. And that's why I'm bringing it up. Because everybody's always finding a scapegoat to blame and making an enemy out of somebody. And it's destroying the witness of the church along with the systems of injustice that the church has embraced in and of itself with its leadership practices. Which is why I think Paul gives us a forceful language for this in this text and then lists all the stuff we need to keep in mind if you read the rest of the text so that we can stand rather than bend to our anger. Now, here's the catch. This is with the world... What do you do when it's within us? So Jesus says this. Look at what Jesus says. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and do what? Rebuke him when? In private. Where? In private. If he listens to you, what have you done? You won your brother back. If he doesn't listen to you, what do you do? Now you take a witness. You partner. First you start in private. If that doesn't work, you find a partner. Then if that doesn't work, you make it public. I call this the three Ps. Conflict resolution in the church, for the church, is that we handle business together. If you see me in sin, what does it mean to love me for God's sake? 
to tell me, even if it's with a rebuke. And do it privately, not passive-aggressively, right, on Facebook. I saw that happen to a preacher, seriously. I saw that happen to a preacher three weeks ago. Church member didn't like what he preached on Sunday, and they passive-aggressively named him on Facebook and caused a firestorm within the church, and the elders had lacked the courage to handle it. Well, it happens, though. It may not happen in Facebook, but it happens in a missional community. Or it happens in the water cooler. Right? Like, this is about brothers and sisters. This is about the church's relationship with the world. This is the church's relationship with the church. If you find me in sin, if I sin against you, then you have to do what? Rebuke me in where, though? Privately. If I listen and repent, then what have we just done? We've modeled forgiveness because really, at the end of the day, if I sinned against you, who's got the problem, you or me? Say me. Say, say you. 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 I do. Sorry, that was confusing. Say Fred. If, if, the thing is, is if somebody sins against you, you may be hurt, but who has the spiritual destructive problem? They do. They're going to go down the road of self-destruction. That's why one of our words is love one another for God's sake. If you love somebody for their sake, then you're only going to be willing to love them to the degree that you make them happy or not. If you love somebody for your sake, you're going to love them in a way that benefits you or not. But if you love somebody for God's sake, you will love them no matter the cost, even if it means they don't like you when you're done. But if you know you're not doing this to satisfy yourself, which is always my motive check number one. Anytime I'm angry and I see something, I always ask, if, if I'm going to confront you, am I doing this to satisfy me or is this really for your good? If I can't answer that, I don't do anything until I can answer that. I've got to be able to look Jesus in the mirror and say with integrity, to the best of my ability, I don't think I did this to make myself feel good. I think I did this for their good because this was going to destroy them. I mean, I'm not going to drink the rat poison waiting on the rat to die. So it's the three Ps. It's privately. And if that doesn't work, you bring a partner in. You bring another Christian brother of the local church. You bring somebody from here in. I'm going to talk to us. We bring somebody here. And somebody you trust spiritually, not somebody who's just going to be on your side and do what you're not with. I brought my heavy with me. Heard you said this about free. You know, like, not that. Like, that's not what you do. You bring it in. And then if that doesn't work, what do you do? You go public to the church about it. Public, not as into the world, unless the church is collective, which is what we're seeing in a lot of cases, right, is just in denial. Because you can't be lumped into that. This is why Paul is direct. Listen to this language. Listen to the next text. If people are causing divisions among you, meaning if there are divisive attitudes and divisive people, people who are stirring up pots to divide the church... Give a first warning and a second warning, and then after that, what? Have nothing to do with them. That's hardcore, isn't it? For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemned them. I know we don't like this in this culture of inclusion, but what would happen with some of the church, some of the injustices and the systemic injustices of the church if the church would have taken these things seriously? We'd have stayed together and we would have borne witness to 
what it means to be holy and then had a chance to bear witness to forgiveness and reconciliation rather than willful blindness and denial and watching sin birth itself through the life of the church anyway. Here's the thing. I know this is hard. Now, keep in mind, this isn't about you in the world or me in the world. This is church to church. Warn them once, warn them twice, and then what? Give them what they want. That's my language. You give them what they want. If you want the vision, I'll give you the vision. It's over there. It's not here. This is hard. Churches often lack courage to practice this. But if you don't, what will happen? We'll divide us. And what will it do to the witness? Can we focus on the poor and the marginalized if we are too busy fighting each other? You can't do it. We're too busy fighting each other. We're too exhausted. All the sermons turn toward that. The Eucharist is turned toward that. The Psalms is turned toward that. The whole time, people are dying. And we're just fighting. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. Next, that's why Paul also said this. Now I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause dissensions. This is about anger, giving birth to relational conflict. Dissensions and obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've learned. Avoid them for such people, regardless of what they say, do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. The fact is, in the American church in the United States, there are some of us who are more committed to our country or our party ideology than we are the gospel, and it shows in how dissentious we get when something is preached or said or taught that is contrary to our political convictions. And that is why we have a divided church in our country. That's not why. That's one of the reasons why. And then what happens is we become prey to all of that, and we forget the kingdom. And this is hard. But here's what we're revealing. If you say something that is theologically correct and somebody casts you with a label, I want you to know that it reveals more about them than it does you, that they needed a label for which to categorize you with. They just revealed their antagonism and their ideology. When you just described that sister as liberal, you just revealed your ideology. And that is what kills us. It's also what stirs up anger, which is why I'm bringing it up now. This creates anger, and it can lead to wrath. Next. So we have our rule of life. If you question a brother or sister's motives, instead of giving yourself room to keep questioning it, first off, question whether or not you should be questioning it in the first place if it really is helpful beneficial, wise, or praiseworthy. And if you feel that it is, then just go ask Sherry what you think she really meant. Say, Sherry, look, I know you, and I really don't believe, but this is, it's doing in me, and I don't want to give the enemy any room to work with us. So do you really, really think John is that handsome? Like, <laughs> like, like, like you ask that question. <laughs> you know, like, you, <laughs> like ask. And she'll say, of course, have you not seen him? All right, this is why we do it. Next. Because here's the key, and I want to close here. Let's read it together. For though we live in the body, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way, since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. So 
let me, a personal confession. If you want to know why I preach the things I preach, it's because the only weapon we really have is to demolish ideological arguments that work us away from the cross rather than to the cross. Our, our weapons are words, words of blessing or words of rebuke. That's what we've got. We don't pick up swords, guns, and knives, and, and, and bows and arrows. That's, that's, those are the worldly weapons that the Bible talks about. It's there. We're supposed to pick up different ones, and they have power because the Holy Spirit is at work bringing lives to change and transformation and repentance. We do demolish arguments with truth but we give validation to that truth with how we go about doing that. And if the how does not look like humility and love, then we're doing it wrong. Anger will invite us into a place of wrath that will invite us into an entirely different response. So I'll say this because it's been asked, and I want to I say it now. I am often asked, what is my problem? Back when the Obama administration was around, the Trump administration was around, and even the Bush administration was around, some of the stuff that I was teaching, I had some people who would come up to me and say, what's your problem with, with this? What's your problem with Bush? What's your problem with Obama? What's your problem with Trump? What's your problem? Here's the thing I'm going to tell you. I, I might have my own sociological or social political beliefs, or whatever the case may be. All of you should know by now, I don't really give that much of a rip about our party politics. But that being said, here's what I care about. If somebody confesses to be a Christ follower and then promotes behaviors or ways of being that are anti the Christ that they say they follow, I've got a problem with that. See, that's not a political problem anymore. That's a pastoral problem. Because what ends up happening is Christians end up buying into that and thinking that that person's a Christian when there is nothing in their behavior or life that indicates otherwise. Why do I bring that up? Because that is one of the central points of our American rage, and it's worked its way too deeply into the church, and we cannot let it divide us because... Is Bush welcome to this table? Is Hillary Clinton welcome to this table? Is Donald Trump welcome to this table? Is Bernie Sanders welcome to this table? Every one of them are welcome to this table. Because whose table is this? Who are we? And we are called to issue the invitation that the host has given us to issue. And we can't choose who invites who. That's not our choice. I wished it was, but it's just not. Christ opens the table for any and all who wants to receive His presence. And here's the good news. No matter what you've done and where you've been, you are welcomed here. But if you come here, don't leave the same. Don't. Leave changed. Because the body and the blood of Jesus was shed to liberate you from thinking that there's something better than life in the kingdom of God. And even if the church has been responsible for that, Find some people that you know in our worst days, at least we're trying to be faithful and be faithful with them. But don't leave the same. <laughs>